to GNT, the podcast from political blog The Groucho Tendency. Are you a misfit or a weirdo? Are you looking for employment, gainful employment, at the hands of Her Majesty's government? Do you consider yourself being an outsider, someone who could upset the status quo, while perhaps not actually upsetting the status quo? Then you could be just who Dominic Cummings is looking for. Hello and welcome to GNT, the politics podcast from the Groucho Tendency. My name is Mike Indian, I'm the blog's editor and author, and I'm back with my usual sparring partner. A man for whom Lisa Nandy cannot become Labour leader soon enough, it seems. <laughs> a man for whom, you know, the, the phrase row replacement bus is no more than a mild inconvenience for making it in here on a rainy Sunday afternoon to the Speaker pub in Westminster. I am, of course, referring to the Nostradamus of Twickenham, Liam Kay. Truly dedicated. <laughs> Truly dedicated. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, we don't need to explain to our listeners just how miserable the weather is if you're here in the UK. It's been horrible this weekend. And it's coming off the back of um, what's been a pretty stormy week in, in Westminster, too. Yeah, it's, it seems to have um, decided that it's going to reflect uh, some British politics once mm. the weather. Um, we, I mean, we, we were expecting. We were expecting a fairly interesting week anyway. You know, two weeks ago we were looking forward to the reshuffle, so let's not, uh, let's not um, delay anymore and dive straight in with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's w- w- one of those interesting reshuffles that in uh, many respects, um, I think in a few months the only thing anyone will ever remember about it will be um, the headline um, loss like how, how to misplace a chancellor I think it could be put down if you were ever uh, sort of doing yes. a chapter with the, um, uh, the, uh, the Boris Johnson uh, sort of uh, to, to quote news biography. Nick Watt there has been a rule as he puts it in British politics that if you lose your chance of the exchequer you're usually in trouble and the reshuffle of course the headlines on the reshuffle were Shazid Javid chancellor for seven months is out yeah. in the cold now uh, had packed his boxes and left in the, in the brutal swiftness that is only British politics can operate in yeah. the, the first Chancellor as well um, since the Victorian age um, bar one very very uh, untimely death in the yeah, 70s McLeod, yeah. um, who hasn't actually delivered a budget yes he which is, is due on the 11th of March yes. or sounds like he probably isn't just to uh, we, we will touch on the budget there. later um, but I mean Apart from Javid, we'll come back to Javid, I think we need to talk about him in more detail, but first of all, we gave some predictions in the the last podcast of who we thought would be in and out in the reshuffle, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, for example, we talked about Theresa Villiers would be out as Environment Secretary. Mm. A lot of the pre-briefed changes happened, so... Let's go through quickly uh, our new game of winners and losers yeah. for the government reshuffle. <laughs> so we've got four people so far we've picked out who are winners from this reshuffle. So who is our first one? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to say Alex Sharma. Alex Sharma. A, um, a, good, a very good reshuffle, I think. You know, mm. he's, he's, he's moved himself from a department that was... Rumoured to be 
on the way out anyway. So he was Secretary of State for International yes. Development before the reshuffle. And, you know, may still have a, um, a shorter life expectancy <laughs> than it perhaps... <laughs> this is Diffin, not Alok Sharma, we should yes, say. Yes, yes, yes. No, Alok no, Sharma's no, in rude hell. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting sort of... I, th- I think as, as we go through the, the winners of this, actually, I think, I think the key thing, actually, to mention at the moment is that a lot of these people who are being promoted are being promoted. I, I don't think they're particularly the A-list, are they? I mean, going back... They're not going to rock the buttons, going are back, they? Going back through to Diffid, um, a year ago now, they had... Rory Stewart. Yes. Oh no, no, not quite. Sorry. No, no, no f- further back. Penny Morden. Penny Morden. Sorry, yes. And then, you know, if if we take, we had Rory Stewart, and Rory, you know, has gone his, has gone his own he's way. He's wandered off. He's walked off to try and become London man. Yes, he's uh, currently staying in somebody's house in Hackney. Um, I can't invite him to stay on my sofa. I should say. I think yeah. I, draw, I like Rory Stewart, but I draw the line of having him on my sofa in, in Tottenham. But I mean, like the thing that you can say is that Rory Stewart and Penny Mordaunt were divided by a Brexit vote, but um, perhaps um, sort of you know brought together by their general competence um, and belief in what Diffid does as well. Penny yes. Mordaunt was a pro strong advocate for the department and uh, the, its use in you know foreign affairs. Rory Stewart, of course, even though he was only there for a few a month or so, yeah. did make a point of committing to use Diffid funds to tackle climate change. As well, yeah. you know, because you know, Diffid has a 14 billion pound budget, which isn't a lot, but it has a lot of potential room for manoeuvre. So Alok Sharma is somebody who, when he was appointed, you know, hasn't really made waves at the park. It's fair to say, no. But he's now been rewarded with the Ministry for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy, and interestingly, the President's ministerial responsibility for the COP26 summit, which the UK yeah. is chairing at the end of this year, which is. You know, it was interesting. The the, the former head of it, um, head of the COP's twenty uh, six, sort of left. Claire Perry O'Neill. Yes, um, the government's decision was that it should go to a minister to chair from here on in. Been normal practice. I spoke to yes. someone I know at Bayes about this a while ago, and they they said they suggested that she could be in trouble before Christmas. So it's yeah. not a mass surprise that's gone to a minister. But Alok Sharma going to Bayes is it's a big promotion for him. It's a big, mm. especially given the the scope for that department, particularly to do with, you know, managing not just the climate change agenda, but also yeah. um, things like state aid and businesses post-Brexit as well. It's, it's I mean, it's certainly, I mean, like, you know, go, my, my, my day job sort of writing about charities, you cover a lot about the international development sector and DFID comes up quite prominently in it. Um, you heard a lot, Penny Mordant was, you know, despite being, I think ideologically on a few ideas, very separate from quite a lot of the charities, the heads heads of the charities that she was um, presiding over and providing with funding. She was very well respected. She did incredibly well when the Oxfam scandal came up. Yes, um, she was handled a big that deal really on um, She was kind of moved to. She was moved to defence because she wanted to be in defence uh, later. Jetsons by Boris. Um, Rory was in for a short time, but he was energetic. Mm. Um, he had a lot to say. He was keen to sort of you know, grab the ball 
pilot horns, the sort of like in, international development. So people were pleased with him. And like Sharma has been fairly inconspicuous. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? Yes, and it's it's not. I mean, sometimes it's not a bad thing with a minister to have somebody who doesn't want to tear everything up mm. and start again and wants to keep things ticking over. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And But he's one of a list of cabinet members that I would put down very firmly on the our goods, competent, don't overpromote. And... Um, and he's I, been over-promoted. I, 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 think, I think if he'd have stayed at Diffid's, that may well have made sense, mm. especially if Diffid is a department that they want to, like in a year or so, steadily put into their foreign office or something like that, if that is the general plan. Mm. It would make sense to just say, look after this. You know, you've already got this job. You're fairly new in post anyway. Mm. He's, he's, he's only been there. Around about six months. The different the different jobs now gone to Anne Marie Trevelyan, who yes. is very much a Johnson loyalist. Um, she's only been MP since 2015. I interviewed her when she was running to be an MP, and and now all the FCO and different ministers are joint. Everyone apart from the Secretary of State. And there is there is very strong talk that the departments FCO, Foreign Office, and Diffid will merge later in the year. That Diffid will disappear inside the FCO again, right? Because it was born in '97 under Blair. Yeah. Is that a good thing? I would say they're a loser because it hasn't really happened, but I think it's worth just to is, is it a good thing to merge Diffid back into the Foreign Office? It gives the Foreign Office a lot more clout than it currently has in terms of budget and responsibility. I mean, taking in mind, it was dependent on how it was done. I think the principle of international development for the country, I think it's important, and I think having its own ministry. Um, allows it to have more sway mm. at cabinet level mm-hmm. to make an argument for its funding to be retained mm-hmm. and for further cuts to come. I think if it is brought into the Foreign Office, I think there's a very, very strong possibility. I think it would almost a certainty that the amount that Britain would therefore spend on genuine international development that was not simply investing in you know investing into business things to build up British um, from you know soft power around mm. the world but genuine international development of sort you know helping starving children you know helping li- alleviate poverty around the world there would be less money going towards it okay. I think there's an argument for bringing Diffid into the foreign office mm. but the argument I think intrinsically suggests that the reason that you give aid is to as a soft power um, you, you, know, you, you are giving it you are essentially investing in order to create alliances mm. and if, if you subscribe to that theory you know, I'm not going to say whether or not I, I do or not <laughs> but um, it's um, if, if you subscribe to that theory it makes sense to do that if you subscribe to the theory that international development is an important thing and should we should be doing it because it's the right thing to do around the world, 
um, that we should be looking to alleviate poverty, that there shouldn't be strings attached, then it's a terrible idea to move DFID to the Foreign Office. But okay. we shall see. Okay, so a potential loser there. Another big winner, though, for the reshuffle was George Eustace, who has been, I think he's the man with the most ministerial experience of his department of anyone in government. He's been a DEFRA minister as Environment, Food and Rural Affairs since 2013, with only a few month break last year. Yeah. He's been the following minister for a very long time. Probably one of the more interesting men in government as well, a former press secretary to David Cameron, but also a former candidate for UKIP as well. Staunch Brexiteer, MP for Campbell and Redruth, and he is now Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, which is a massive department ahead, especially in the year ahead when they've got two big bits of legislation current before Parliament on the new Environment Office Environmental Protection and the Agriculture Bill creating a new regulation of farming subsidies yeah. for post-EU. So it's a massive job to give to him, but one that opted for the, what you might term a safe pair of hands in that case. It's, it, it makes sense. I mean, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about his um, sort of predecessor a little bit more in the losers mm-hmm. section. But, um, yeah, I do, I do think it's... A, He's a safe pair of hands. Yeah. Um, it is a, it's a profoundly sensible move for keeping things ticking along. I'm not overly sure whether DEFRA needs somebody to be keeping it ticking along, though, given the challenges of certainly of the next 12 months. Well, given the fact that Theresa May had Michael Gove in there for two years. Mm. And you know he's probably the only person in the cabinet who's probably, if say, is an original thinker. Mm. I would say, from the, from just thinking of the cabinet at the top of my head, there were a couple in there, but I think Johnson's largely got rid of them. And Gove has actually benefited in the reshuffle, I should say. He's not one of the, the big winners, but he's got complete control of the cabinet office now, and he's now also going to lead on the constitutional commission review as well. But Defra is something where you know having having somebody like George Eustace who. You know, you've got to design the new farm payment system as well. The legislation about for Parliament too. It's a difficult thing to get right because you know, British agriculture is worried about leaving the EU and the implications of losing the farming subsidies. You know, particularly for small upland hill farmers as well. Yeah, they don't have a very tight margin. You know, particularly to farm sheep is a good example. They don't have massive overheads. Yeah, and you know, and these also could also be knackered by any future trade deal. And DEF is going to be responsible for maintaining, you know, you know food standards after we leave as well. So it's it's it could be a poison chalice. So there is an argument said for having someone who knows the sector inside out. But Eustace isn't somebody who's going to break the mold, is he? To be honest. No. And you know, I think there's like a certain. Um, I mean, you, know, you look back on the, you know, going back to Alok Sharma a little bit, um, it is that sort of mould of, you know, he, he, he got business, um, which is a big job actually when you take into account Brexit. DEFRA is a big job when you take into account Brexit, and people are getting brought in a nice, safe pair of hands. They're actually the sort of people that you would want in charge of those departments if people were. Um, if you were looking to innovate in other areas of government um, and wanted somebody to make sure that there wasn't a massive crisis in those areas. And, you know, in, in many respects, the thing with DEFRA is, you know, the, there was a lot of challenges coming outside Brexit as well um, to British farming. I mean, um, 
you know, if you look at things like Veganuary and, you know, mm. how, how does sort of like the British dairy and meat industries adapt to it? And it is something that the government needs to sort of like take into account. You need people who are perhaps able to think quite creatively mm. about what the future of British farming is and agriculture, what should be prioritised, especially, you know, Brexit gives an opportunity to do that. You know, there's an argument that having somebody who knows it inside out is good for picking out the points at which, you know, may have been overlooked by other ministers. There's also um, the sense of having somebody who does think a little bit more creatively and is prepared to really, really push back, I think. Um, would be useful. Yeah. But so the other big area, the big winner I should say, is Oliver Dowden, who you may not have heard of him, but he's someone who's been around at the sort of core of Westminster for about a decade now. He was a special advisor to David Cameron until twenty fifteen. He's the MP for Hartsmere. And since uh, Johnson came in, he has been in the cabinet office helping Michael Gove run things. But he's been rewarded now with a Secretary of State for culture, media and sport, digital yeah. culture, media and sport I should say. DCMS. And the reason this matters is that although DFID is largely seen as a you know, department for fun and games by some people, one of Johnson's headline pledges has been to roll out gigabit broadband across the country, high speed mm. broadband. So Downing is somebody who knows the Westminster machine inside out, he's not a very high profile media performer, so, but he's someone who knows the civil service machine. So there is a pattern emerging here in the appointees we're seeing so far. People who aren't going to rock the boat but can just get on with stuff at the department. Yeah. I, I think the thing with Downden is he's, he's kind of broadly brought in among that sort of like lines of, um, you know, up and coming potential in the, in the Conservative Party. Yeah. You know, some of these other, um, there's, 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 there's a big name who will come to a little bit later in that sort of group, but, um, you know, Robert Jenrick, for example. The first millennial cabinet minister? Yes. It's like that sort of new new Tories that are kind of quite... Sort of after the post-2010 intake, we're saying here. Yeah. They're, they're kind of quite comfortable with the world. Um, have, uncomfortable with how sort of like conservatism, I think, fits within that. And yes. He kind of very firmly comes... With the he, he, you know that Cameronite kind of, but you know, which is we, interesting in itself because the Cameroonianism, he's the last great survivor of Cameroonianism mm. inside government now. Really, everyone else has pretty much receded from view. You know, I mean, yes, Matt Hancock's knocking around still at health, but he's somebody who's you know kind of in a bit of a dead end department now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, health doesn't. It, it was last time the health secretary went on to become the Tory party. You know. It's true, but it was also one of the top three pledges that they were coming in the election. It is. It's, it's, it's that kind of, um, I, I think... Johnson's boxing in his cabinet here, aren't he? He's putting people mm. in the departments he needs to deliver that he can trust, in grant shops and transport. The other big question on Down's desk, and this is where a Secretary of State, you know, you know, someone with a lack of, you know, you know, pronouncements is a bit worrying, is the BBC. Well, mm. Because we know for a fact the government is consulting on the, um, you know, the decriminalisation of non-payment of the licence fee for the first time. Even, even more so, there was a news story that came out today that suggests that the government has already told the BBC that it wants it to be a subscription model. Yeah. And 
you know, it's 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 a big. I mean, this is this is certainly an issue. I think that will kind of run over a number of years. So I think we'll come back to it in more detail in a future podcast. But it's it's a big big decision. The BBC the is getting battered at the moment from all sides as well. Yeah, well, it's you know it's. You know, there's a century of British culture and uh, sort of tied up in that. And whoever does get in, whatever the decision is made, um, it's a big job when you add that into sort of broadband. Commonwealth Games coming up as well, Birmingham. Yes, we we will see. We will see if he's up to sort of further promotion. I think this is a good. And also, I mean, just think about this one from the from the from the levelling up agenda. Um, Arts Council funding for the north of England as well. I imagine you know, you know, what does the, does the leveling up agenda pertain to spreading cultural opportunities outside of the centre too? It's just, you know, talked about soft power earlier. You yeah. know, even within the country, intra-regional, inter-regional relationships. You know, you know, in spending review coming up, is Downing going to fight his corner to get enough Arts Council and increase Arts Council funding for you know regional theatre, for example, opportunities. Mm. You know, I mean, you and I could both think of some cracking regional theatres, but London still has more than its fair share. You could argue. Yeah, and. You know, it will come into this, I suppose, you know, what Johnsonianism, you know, what... Johnsonianism, yeah. It's a terrible phrase, it's a terrible phrase, so Borisism sounds Borisism, yeah. But what what, what does Borisism actually mean? You know, is he actually, uh, it's like, sort of, contrasting, you know, levelling up the country, Versus, sounds like a great idea. Which, which is a great idea, and then in the post-Brexit world of having world-class, you know, being a world-class free trading sort of staging post in the world that everybody will want to deal with on its own, which actually suggests that you should focus most of your funding on London as a policy. And given that he's he's certainly said that he will do the former. But says that his Brexit policy will not harm the latter. It will be interesting to see how, in the next few years, they sort of work, work the balances out a little bit. Right, very quickly, we've got to mention, I think, Suella Braveman, who has just yeah. joined, uh, not the cabinet, but she's attending cabinet as Attorney General. Not an appointment many people uh, in the legal profession seem to have welcomed, I think, you know what I mean? Somebody who, given that the government is committed to reviewing the scope of judicial review as part of a massive constitutional commission that will be under Michael Gove's purview, the entire scope of the um, of the policies um, that she could be propagating as Attorney General seem to go beyond legal advice. She's somebody who, unlike Jeffrey Cox, has far more of a political slant to her than a legal slant. Yeah, and the role of Attorney General has evolved interestingly given the fact there's now a mechanism for Parliament to publish to force government to publish legal advice through the humble address mechanism. But Braveman, somebody who so far you sort of click with her on Charles Four about the membership of the European Research Group to yes. public money. Is she somebody I think who I see her, I could see her leaving government, being the first one to leave the government actually, to be honest. I think it's more of a political appointment than a uh, one but that shows to a great deal of the ability of the person doing the job. It was it was very interesting as well the speech that she gave I think eight days before she came in uh, 
and um, she was speaking the, the Commons, and it was very much about you know the, the scope of the uh, Supreme Court mm. to um, make what was seen as sort of political judgments, and it certainly suggests that. Again, it's the the Johnson Cummings. Um, uh, you tried to stop me before, so here's the revenge side. Um, Near the BBC, you know, got the judiciary, um, a number of other names, sort of like you know, popping around there. Sort of, you know, big, you know, big business actually. Sort of, you know, CBI and things like that have been kind of ignored to an extent, um, and you know, it, it's very much a an instance where you think something may well happen with the Supreme Court it will be an incredibly risky move I think more than likely is it's an indication I think to the grassroots that no matter what happens Brexit Boris is still on your side um, and you know having a former head of the ERG uh, in the bit where you might be taking yeah, well, maybe taking the um, lead on anything to do with the Supreme Court in future, um, it may well just be a... It makes Robert Button's job at Ministry of Justice all that more difficult now, but he yes. has to deal with a more activist interventionist law officer than he had to deal with under Geoffrey Cox. Okay, so let's quickly move on to losers from the reshuffle. Um, safe to say, if you were a Brexiteer and you were a woman, then you definitely lost out, particularly if you were Andrea Ledson or Esther McVeigh. Two people who swung in Teresa behind Villiers Boris. as well. Theresa Villiers too. Three people who swung in behind Johnson at a very early stage of the leadership campaign. Um, even, though, even though Ledson and McVeigh did run for leader themselves. Mm. Or people who've been very committed as vocal Brexiteers as well. Uh, people who were included in Johnson's first cabinet but weren't seen as lasting much longer. And sure enough, Andrew Ledson, who met three and a half years ago, was nearly our Prime Minister. Yeah, very, not for a certain Sunday Times interview. And, I mean, in many respects, it, it does say something actually about the modern Conservative Party. That, because, um, you know, I, I think we were we were toying before with uh, including um, in our winners list um, a certain Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, I don't think anybody would say that any of those three women that we just mentioned are competent, brilliant, outstanding members of the cabinet that have been jettisoned, and I don't think anybody will miss them in particular. But. There does seem to be a certain, uh, a certain little strain of incompetent female Brexiteers that have been moved out, and incompetent male Brexiteers who are still leader of the House of Commons. Yes, and among others, there are there are quite it's a, very quite a lengthy. I mean, I haven't gone to the Foreign Office. I should say, Andrew Lesson is 
in, in Andrea Ledford's defence, I don't say this happened, she actually was a pretty good leader of the house. Yeah. She lost up on bullying, and Jacob Rees Mogg just sits there and opines about opposition data. I mean, he must be the first leader of the House of Commons who has actually made it into a meme, which uh, yeah. wasn't a very good meme, so I mean, like, you know, we should. No, uh, a lot of people were Mogg to go, but I think he's quite a recognisable. I think he's been kept because of his name recognition, isn't he? Keeping the government, you know, he's not going to. He, he's in the job he wants to be in as leader of the house. He's not after a big yeah. department. He likes being where he is, and, and you know it doesn't cost a lot to keep him there right now. I think I think actually those those three going in many ways suggests that Johnson is very aware that the world's going to move on past Brexit. Yes, you know, twenty twenty one. We hope we hope we've passed. Yeah, we, we, we're assuming we'll, we'll take the current sort of uh, predictions, everything, and kind of deadlines on. If everything works, yep, transition period still ends at the end of this year. Then, yeah, twenty twenty one. You know, post Brexit world. Do you actually need Brexiteers? Do, do they have other ideas? Do they do, do they bring anything there's, else to the table? There's a deeper question would, yeah. about how quickly Westminster moves past the Remainers versus Leavers division because the Labour Party is struggling with that at the moment as well. Another Brexiteer who lost out was Geoffrey Cox, who interestingly introduced Boris at his leadership launch back in the summer. Yeah. Uh, Cox, again, not a massive surprise he's gone, but he was somewhat more independently minded. The best commentary I saw was you know, Boris was never going to keep someone who named his chambers after Thomas More, so Thomas More mm-hmm. as the Attorney General. I mean, Cox, Cox has been insane. I'm not sure he's a great loss to government but he is somebody I remember the thing about Cox that I always remember is that when he was asked to give politicised advice about Theresa May's Brexit deal he gave a straight legal argument about whether or not the backstop had changed and he didn't he went down the line and stuck to the legal angle so he was a lawyer first and a politician second it seemed and he was he was um, very interestingly the best paid member of the House of Commons how much did he earn a year do you remember oh 800 800,000 yeah. pounds a year yeah. for his legal practice so we can go back to that now Exactly. I think, to be honest, he comes across as somebody I think that much preferred doing that. But you know, as as Attorney General, actually, he was very legalistic, which is probably actually what you want in the the role. Well, it's meant to be the government's chief legal advisor. So having a, having someone who's a lawyer first, the politician second, probably isn't a bad. Even albeit a very well paid lawyer, he was prepared to say when he didn't. Agree and make his arguments forcefully uh, with evidence, and I think for that, I think for that he'll be missed. Yeah, um, you know, regardless of what your views are, so, you know, it's, it's, it comes down to that Remainer versus sort of you know Brexiteer, sort of you know, at what point do you jettison it? In terms of the Conservative Party, he was he was a very good, competent Attorney General. He rallied the troops from time, and Theresa May was really struggling as well. He could make yeah. the Brexiteers feel good about themselves. Yeah, and you know he made his cases for the deal. It's most probably a little bit around the proroguing of Parliament, um, which. You know, doesn't seem like a long time ago now, but it's something I think that they they remember. It was, you know, 
it was the sort of like very juvenile politics at the time of sort of schoolboy let's probe parliament so people can't talk about it and expect that there wouldn't be a legal challenge that would go through the courts and might actually be successful um, I didn't think it would be successful at the time but it did um, it was perhaps a bit of a gamble that was perhaps unnecessary and perhaps actually was sort of went against them actually achieving what they wanted to by the deadline that they wanted to do. They never met their deadline in the end and it was it was a failure of a policy. It wasn't Geoffrey Cox who came up with that policy. No. But um, he did his best for what he was given. Nicky De Costa, the Prime Minister's parliamentary advisor who advised yeah. on prorogation. And wasn't that just a silly mistake? Speaking of missteps, um, the one change that was judged to have been perhaps something of a misstep was the choice to get rid of Julian Smith as Northern Ireland Secretary. Now you might be thinking, why does Secretary of State of Northern Ireland really matter? Uh, because after three years of deadlock, Smith was the man who brought the devolved assembly back to working order again. He was also somebody in the cabinet who was quite willing to express doubt about the direction of Boris's policies, particularly towards the end of last year when he was apparently courting, flirting with the idea of resigning over the government implications of the government's arrangements on Northern Ireland as well. And if you look at the fact that he received praise variously from um, leaders Sinn Féin, Michelle O'Neill, in, at Stormont, uh, Arlene Foster and Leo Varadkar. Yeah. You just have to look at the judge that actually he has had a very successful minister. Now, obviously, being a successful minister in the last 12 months doesn't say a lot, but he has actually delivered well, something that was difficult and protracted and tricky to manage. I, I, I think, actually, I mean, so, you, know, you say in comparison to the, the current, you know, the most recent sort of set of Sort of Northern Ireland secretaries. In fact, I actually think historically, if you take everybody who's ever been in the role, Billy Mo Molan. Yeah, Peter I mean, Anderson's an impressive performance. Mo Molan, I think, was greatest, yeah. but far and away is sort of think a set standard on that. that yeah. I don't think will probably be matched. No. But I mean, like, he's not. Certainly, if you're going to do a Premier League table, he'd be pushing for Champions League qualification, replacing Manchester City, perhaps. Or we, just, like we need to rank all the Northern Ireland secretaries there've ever been. Peter Hadrian comes somewhere near the middle, I suspect. Yeah. You know. Um, you know. I think to I, th- I think the great thing with um, sort of Julian Smith is that he's had he's come after like the Karen Bradleys of the world that have been like unmitigated disasters. Um, Misread the mood of the know what sectarian, you know. Yeah, it was just you know. He looks even better, I think, because of it. But I think he he does he does hold his own with. Yeah, like it. and you know, bringing back sort of you know the power sharing agreement to Stormont. I mean, which is off the back of you know not getting the five parts down, but it's hashing out an agreement with the, the Irish government. And it's, it's a fail. It's a big It's a big risk as well, given the election results in Ireland, which were announced before this um, reshuffle took place. Mm. That Julian Smith actually could have done one thing left after a relatively short period of time as Northern Ireland Secretary and then find out that um, a Sinn Féin involved government in Ireland means that the Stormont agreement actually falls to pieces once he's left which will make him look even better I, I would not be surprised to see him back in the um, in the cabinet at some point in the future he, he certainly held a tough alliance through his most chief whip for two years as well yeah He's, 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 he's a very competent 
minister and I think it's it's a massive loss to the government. I, I, I would they needed I would win, end. didn't they, this time? They needed a win. If 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 I'd have been if I'd have been sat in number ten making the reshuffle, he would have he would not be Northern Ireland secretary, but he would certainly be in a more senior position in the cabinet. Vance actually wouldn't have been a bad bet for him actually. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this kind of nicely segues into our next area. So we can't ignore it any longer. The Treasury, the biggest loser of this week, it wasn't any single minister. It was an entire government department, the biggest government department, the most important government department, Her Majesty's Treasury, and. No surprises there, um, because the new Chancellor has surrendered a large degree of his political independence to Downing Street for the first time in living memory. Yeah, it's. I mean, uh, I, th- I think sort of like perhaps perhaps starting from starting from the beginning. I mean, um, Sajid Javid as as Chancellor had quite an unfortunate. Um, nickname around Westminster, which was Chino, uh, sort of Chancellor in name only, and like there was a fair amount of truth to that, but there was also a lot that uh, you know Javid, I think. Sajid Javid has always come across as somebody who's been willing to do what it takes to become Prime Minister without actually being particularly charismatic in doing so. Think about his actions as Home Secretary, you know, Shemima Bacon being a good example of that, invoking yeah. citizenship, you know, he's not, he's not afraid to take a bold stance occasionally, controversial stance, but always the right stance, but he just want to make a mark in the department. And this time, I mean, sort of historically for Prime Ministers, the Treasury has always been very difficult to sort of combat. Um, sort of, you know, Prime Ministers don't actually have their own departments to provide a lot of, you know, with a lot of civil servants to create a lot of the kind of heft of policy argument um, that they need in comparison to the Treasury. I think there's like five times more advisors in the Treasury than there is at number 10. And you know, you can have all the most creative thinkers in the world, but the Treasury has entire teams of people looking at every department. You know, a Prime Minister, if you appoint 30 different people, you've still got one person. It's the only revenue-raising department as well in government. Yeah. You've got HMRC to factor into that as well. It's incredibly powerful. So what, why did Javid, why did Sajid Javid get, was it deliberate? Um, I mean, he, he walked essentially because he was told to sack all of his advisors. And why, does that, why does that matter? Why does it get rid of five people versus I mean, to have an entire department working for you? Why does I, mean, I think the, the key thing was that his advisors would be shared with number 10, that they would be appointed by number 10, and it would already make a Chancellor who has already been ridiculed by a lot of colleagues as Chino. Um, who lacks, who did lack authority because of that and was trying to, um, over the past few weeks, I mean, he's backing of HS2 and the leaking of that to the newspapers. Yeah, it came out the week before the announcement was made yeah. by Boris Johnson. And you know, things like this just making him appear more authoritative in the cabinet and as a chancellor. It's a position that Gordon Brown was 
cancelling the exchequer against Blair very, very famously. Um, so, you know, you look, apart from the George Osborne David Cameron dynamic, yeah. it has mostly been chancellors telling prime ministers they can't do their policies for various different reasons. And yes, you know, there are pros and cons to that, that relationship, but being told to. I mean, any politician being told that all your advisers who you employ, who you trust to give you advice um, for your benefit, not for the benefit of other people, but to make sure that you were making the right decision in your job, to sack them all, I think, I think it's... I, I think any politician that was asked to do that, senior politician, was asked to do that in the, in a job they're already in, he'd walk. Jaffe did that. So yeah. who was taken in then? Who is who is the man who took looked at these conditions, which we say is tantamount to surrendering surrendering control, political control of the most powerful department in Whitehall, the one that matters the most, arguably, because it's the one that controls whatever the department can do. Who was the man? who said, okay, I want that. Rishi Sunak. Who was Rishi Sunak? He is the MP for, he's the MP that replaced um, William Hague. Richmond. 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 Yeah. And um, he's sort of like, oh, he's been a golden boy for a while, he was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, which meant he got to go to the Cabinet without actually being a sort of like, full member. But um, he, he stood in for Boris in um, some of the debates in the election. He's known as Boris's favourite minister, isn't he, as well? Yes. And he, he's by all accounts seen as somebody who's very competent anyway. Um, I mean, given everything that's happened before, the identity of the person who's taken over, and given the reported complete breakdown in relationship between Dominic Cummings, you know, and Javid. And Javid. It's very, very difficult to see it as anything other than a presenter plank and see if Javid will walk over the board himself <laughs> without his having to do so. Um, without his having to force him off the ship. And it's just, on the reshuffle day itself, this, is, this has happened half an hour before we knew about Javid. I was saying to a colleague, I can't see Javid still being Chancellor in four years' time. He wasn't Chancellor the 30 minutes later. But, you know, yeah. So it's not as if we were expecting this, this partnership to be like Cameron Osborne or Blair Brown. Because Blair wanted to sack. We never, we never had a, we never had a number 10, number, number 11 relationship like this, have we? No. And number 11 have, have either been, you know, they've, they, they, they might have been less important, they may not have been the co-prime minister, but they've either been a block or they've been able to significantly hold out against number 10. Hammond, for, for the Philip Hammond, a great example, is Theresa May, you know, Philip Hammond didn't see eye to eye, but may never try to get rid of him. But, I mean, in many respects, you have a look at, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, examples of people who've had problems with their chance to have been brought up. I mean, there was, you know, um, Thatcher and uh, Lawson was brought up. Uh, you had the DEA under Wilson. Um, yes. And, you know, you had the Blair-Brown dynamic. And I think the key thing to actually look at all of those ones is uh, the economies did very well in those periods. And those prime ministers lasted quite a long time despite having quite fractious relationships at points with their chancellor. And it's not a bad thing. So is Boris Johnson then more in the world of John Major in the sense that, you know, Major lost... Um, 
Norman Lamont, his chancellor after Black Wednesday, in very difficult circumstances. But for the rest of that time in government, the next four years, Major is effectively politically neutral as a result of that. Now, yeah. no one's no one's really saying that's happened to Boris Johnson, but I think you made a very good point about this earlier before we started. Now I wrote a blog about this yesterday. This reshuffle, the, the net result of this reshuffle, including Javid going, is there isn't anybody in the in the in the cabinet now with the weight to tell Johnson no, and only the Chancellor had potentially had that room and Sunak's decision to allow a joint team of advisors deprives him of an independent thought base from the Downing Street machine irrespective of whether Dominic Cummings is involved or not Cummings may or may not be there in five years time which he probably won't be but the Treasury has always had its own independent stance and that means that the civil it also puts the civil service in a potentially difficult position if I was permanent secretary of the Treasury and the cabinet secretary right now I'd be very worried about this development it, it puts civil servants potentially in a more politically difficult role of having to occasionally argue against the political advice of number 10. Mm. And as well, you, you get that sense of if things are good ideas, then, and you know, you appoint chancellors not because they're your best friend. I mean, like, the Cameron Osborne thing got brought up. I mean, like... That was a direct reaction to Blair Brown, wasn't it? That was a direct yeah. response to, we cannot have this relationship breaking down. And in many respects, you look at the Osborne-Cameron relationship, it was very successful in terms of not having a fractious relationship. Hmm. They also delivered the Omnishambles budget. They also presided over an austerity programme that I don't think was particularly... I mean, they took the country back into recession and after a major recession. The, ta- the tax credits mishap in 2015 as well. Yeah. You know, There's not- a long list of things that are very good ideas individually that were not properly thought through and that failed as soon as they went into the public realm. And it's, it's having a chancellor that is perhaps not like Gordon Brown screaming and shouting at you in your own office telling you you can't do things. Dominic his effing budget, yeah. Yeah. And having somebody who will sort of sit there and you have a nice cup of tea with at the end of every day and go, that was a very good idea, wasn't it, George? And he goes, like, yes, it was, David. And you, you, you kind of want somebody in between who has their own heft, their own ideas, but actually agrees with the principles that you set out with. So they will not suddenly turn around and go, I mean, whether having somebody who's a fiscal conservative, like many in the Conservative Party are, like Sajid Javid, mm. as your Chancellor, when you're wanting to level up the country. And that's uh, the big question, is, is Rishi Sunak's appointment going to make a big difference? Because obviously there's a budget still to come and then there's a spending review for later this year. I mean, you know, if we, are to, if we believe some of the newspaper reports, particularly from the Telegraph, Johnson is looking at tearing up the fiscal rules that Javid bound him into at the start of his parliament, because also don't forget there's a tax lock as part of that. So the government can't raise revenue on the three main sources, like you know, both brackets of income tax and VAT are all locked at the same rate for the next four or five years. Whoever is Chancellor, if they're serious about levelling up the country, which we interpret to mean big regional infrastructure investment, mm. and also investment, as you said, in adult skills as well, flexibility and training, it means more cash for the North. Social care. Social care as well. Yeah. You need money for that, and that means yeah. raising revenue because you can't just rely on government borrowing. I, I think there's, I think there's a, a key thing to sort of like, you know, like 
there's a very big difference between day to day um, sort of current infra, infra, yeah. current capital spending yeah. and you can level up the country in terms of building trains allegedly bridges things like that capital yeah and you can take that and you can put that into public borrowing and there's not huge issues with that by I mean these these fiscal rules and sort of you know are pretty much looking at day-to-day spending. Now's a very good time to borrow money if you want to do some infrastructure spending. You know, historically, the NHS. Yeah, historically low borrowing costs. But if you're going to do it with day-to-day spending, the problem that you get with day-to-day spending is that you do need to increase revenue to do it. Boris has already locked himself in on a few um, either tax reductions or tax freezes, which makes you wonder where the revenue is going to come from. Um, and it has know, to come in this budget because in the subsequent year the government's going to have to be weaker and weaker and before then it's 2024 and they have to run for re-election again. Yeah. I mean, like, they've backed HS2 still, um, which may well have been an area where you could have freed up funding by going, well, this has been a bit of a disaster, let's just accept that we spent this money on it already but let's not spend future money and that would have you know, you could move money onto other but that infrastructure you got to spending. Six billion, that's another twenty billion there already. Even that's a long-term yeah. investment project. And again, the government's balance between long-term uh, aims and short-term needs is one they have to consider as well. So we'll come back to Sunak's budget, I think, in a later podcast because we're running a little short on time. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts we'll move on there? Um, just as a a kind of thing of, I think we'll, you know, it's be seen as a bit of a golden buy. You know, we've not perhaps said enough about sort of Sunak himself. Um, this is the thing that he's, he's, he is someone who has been on the rise very rapidly in the last few years. Yeah, this is his opportunity. I think what he needs to do now is he needs to show that he's not another Chino, like a baby Chino I suppose, and um, sort of, you know, needs to create his own power base and he most certainly needs to, at some point pick a fight with number 10, possibly specifically with Dominic Cummings over something, and to show that he's in a strong position because Johnson can't afford to lose another Chancellor if you lose another Chancellor people do kind of question where you're sort of competence yeah it's I mean you're not a very good manager if you cannot keep somebody in number 11 Downing Street for longer than a few months and um, and that's probably going to come back back to haunt Johnson I think down the line in some way shape or form yes if if Sunan is able to take advantage of it if he does if he does kind of acquiesce to everything that is done, he'll be an extremely weak Chancellor. Um, most probably he will not last the full term anyway, because I think they will want a stronger second fiddle at some point. We will have to wait and see. We'll come back yeah. to the budget, I suspect, in the next podcast, because it'll be coming around the corner. Maybe, well, maybe not, it's delayed. Yeah. Um, let's skip the <laughs> Uh, final 10 minutes let's skip across to America because the last time we spoke a couple of weeks ago the Iowa caucus hadn't happened now since then we've had the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary the two um, the first two rounds of selection in choosing a presidential candidate 
Um, to say the Iowa Caucus didn't go well would be an understatement. There were problems with the declaration of results and it left a very muddled picture. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very, uh, sort of, you know, essentially the, the app that was reporting results from their caucus system, which we're not going to go into the complexities of it, it it's, it's, it's different. <laughs> but it's the best way of putting it. But the app that was reporting um, the caucuses mm. failed, which meant the results essentially didn't come didn't come the night that they were actually supposed to do. Donald Trump keeps referring to the cat run a um, primary. How can you expect them to run the economy? Because a caucus is different to a primary, I learned this recently. So a caucus yes. is where people turn up and they discuss and they can redistribute delegates. According to the jury, a primary is nice and straightforward, they vote on the night. So yes. thanks for, so the eventual result of um, Iowa was that Bernie Sanders and Pete, Mayor Pete came out as within, you know, basically joint first it's fair to say about half a percentage in it but you know percentage in it but basically Billage and uh, Sanders were top followed distant third by I think it's Amy Klobuchar who came in third New Hampshire or Iowa I was thinking of here in Iowa it's because Warren Kate Joe Joe Biden has faded fast the lesson yes. has been that Joe Biden Biden, Biden Biden was not in it Warren I think was third Warren was third in Iowa, in, in, in Iowa. Klobuchar was third in New Hampshire. Yes, Very and Biden has gone from fourth to fifth. fifth. And he's had a very bad start. Say so he was he the skipped, front runner. He skipped the New Hampshire party and went straight to South Carolina for the next primary, which is about a week or so away. I think it's in the next week or so. And you know, it's. I mean. The thing with I mean, there are 4,000 delegates up for grabs, and they need 2,000, so there's only there's tens of delegates up for grabs in New Hampshire and Iowa, but the reason these two contests are important is that anybody, nobody who has gone on to become the Democratic nominee or the, become their party's nominee for president has come lower than third place in either New Hampshire or Iowa in the history. So Joe Biden's chances of winning the nomination have taken a substantial hit after this start. They're important for, I suppose, the, th- the thing is, like, the American, the way the American electoral system works, you have about a year's worth of conversations, and this is the first, this is when these sort of debates and arguments that people have been having turn from the theoretical into the actual, into actual reality. And it's, it's, a, it's a balance between electability and who people really want because they've had, they've had a lot of candidates to choose from, haven't they? I mean, there's a lot of yeah. people like Andrew Yang, for example, dropped out in this one. Uh, I forget the guy's name, the, the guy, Matt guy. So, um, he's got these people that he did so well that nobody can Andrew, 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 There's a yeah. lot of people, so, but realistically, there are five candidates at the front of the pack now, and there are three, I think, who have a realistic chance of becoming the nominee. Hey. I, I, th- I think sort of you know if you look at the winners, I mean just just to stick on Biden for a second, it should be pointed out that he has among black voters by far the highest um, sort of and Mayor Pete doesn't suppose they Mayor Pete yeah. does very badly with ethnic minority voters and in America. You know South Carolina, he's seen as the likely winner is Biden. If but you'd expect him to win in South Carolina, wouldn't yes, you? That's kind of it's, 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 it's become a, a must-win, not a... Yeah, he, if he doesn't win, he's basically out of the race, isn't he? He popped yeah. in single digits in New Hampshire and Iowa. I mean, even Clinton, you know, even Bill Clinton, you know, although he came third in Iowa when he ran for president in 1992, 
he's still built momentum and Biden doesn't yeah. have the sense of the candidate who's building momentum. No, it, it feels like it's, it's front, front runner syndrome, isn't it? It's yeah. like, you know, it's Rudy Giuliani in 2000, who brought, yeah. you know, not quite, probably not as bad, but it's someone with a lot of expectation who's failing to deliver when people meet them. Boris in um, 2016. Yeah. In Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's probably going the same way, it's fair to say. I mean, she's, she's someone who is inspiring certain people, but I think Sanders is pulling ahead as the candidate of the left. You know, yeah. Iowa and New Hampshire both confirm that. The centrist candidate becomes a bit more tricky because Klobuchar and Mayor Pete are fighting out over the same pool of votes, essentially. And, you, and, and Buttigieg has done very well, it should be said. Like he has come from nowhere to come second on joint first in Iowa and second in New yeah. Hampshire. And That's impressive. It's, it's, it's very impressive. And it's, it's actually quite intriguing in many respects. Like Klobuchar's kind of being working away as a bit more of a solid I think policy platform I think which may well be a kind of issue going into primaries in that when you're trying to capture the attention and sort of having a set of policies which are moderate and sensible doesn't tend to lean, lend itself well to doing that but she's a you know in the, the debates um, before the New Hampshire primary, she um, she picked up. It's fair to say. Yeah, she performed extremely well. Um, she got a lot of support. Seems to come from that. She has the problem of perhaps not having the funding and the organisation available unless Biden goes. If, or quickly. Biden, if Biden does badly in South Carolina, he's out. I mean, he might make it to if, Tuesday if he gets into South Carolina, but Biden needs to drop yeah. out now, I think. And, and and I suppose like the, the, the problem that the Democratic primaries have in many respects is that the like not all the candidates have appeared yet. No. And Michael Bloomberg being yes. the most obvious and candidate in that he, he is you know very much he's, he's, he's coming in for the sort of you know the, I mean like essentially the California primary and he's he's coming in for the big the big sort of like you know Super Tuesday votes and he's spending three and a half million on advertising every day it's and of his own money as well this might be the key the key point is whether voters in these early states if Biden has been you know irretrievably wounded you know, I think most most probably he has um, you look at the alternatives you've got Klobuchar who does not have the organisation because she was not I do don't, think, I do don't you think Klobuchar can go all the way that you're, 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 you're somebody who, who you thought you said to me if you thought if any of the candidates in a straight fight with Donald Trump you thought Amy Klobuchar would yeah I think she would beat him hangs down I'll put my cards I think Mayor Pete would be the one to do that but I, how much of that is my liberal bias going Ooh. I have very significant um thing with Buttigieg is he we even say his name differently I say Buttigieg you say Buttigieg yeah it's just like he's very his policy platforms do not for me appear very well thought out he does not seem like the most 
energetic candidate. But I think Warren's got that in space, and she's got a plan for everything, hasn't she? And, you know, yeah, and this I, is kind of that yeah. it was I think Corbynism over there in this country, you know. I think the problem that Elizabeth Warren's had is that she spent a lot of time putting on the velvet gloves around Bernie Sanders, and she should have very, very quickly worked out that it was either her or Sanders, and Sanders had the advantage of being the person who pushed Hillary last time and that she needed to take him out early. So Sanders is the man to beat in this concert, yes. you know. And, you know, he's, in many respects, I don't think, I mean, like, I wouldn't put, Buttigieg, I think you would say, or Buttigieg, whichever one you want to use, whichever <laughs> one you want to use. If you know how to say Mayor Pete's surname, and please, please, please write Liam, it. Liam says, please how do you say it? How do you say it? Buttigieg. But I say Buttigieg. So yeah. if, I, if one of us, I, I, I know, I'm probably going to get wrong here. I'm going to defer to Liam because he does the I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Oh. <laughs> okay, we need, to, we need to wrap up now. So quickly, you're predicting at the moment Sanders is going to win the nomination. I all the current field of candidates, not counting Bloomberg entering at a late stage. I think he would. And then he loses to Trump in the general. Um, I, 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 I think the thing with Sanders is he. Last time out in the primaries, um, he did extremely well in the Rust Belt, where Trump won the election and he beat Hillary in yeah, those areas. Hillary in those areas. And among Democratic votes, it has to be said. I think he is probably the best person to win those states that they probably need to win. However, However. The, there is a very, very, very significant alternative caveat. to that caveat. I don't think he's the best person to keep the Hillary consensus that voted at the last election to get there. But those but those were in largely in, you know, the east and western coastal yeah. states, let's be honest here, you know, she won the popular vote but she lost the state she needed to win. I I think and I think that being from, being from Indiana, I think he's got the reason. I think the thing that works against him, people, is his, is his sexuality. I think that probably would count against him in those Rust Belt states. But I think he speaks that language. I think a lot of people confronted with Trump, particularly black voters, might gravitate towards Mayor Pete then. But what isn't clear yet is what happens if Bloomberg enters at a later stage, because that has the potential for this to be still be the massive scrap that it was for the, Dem- for the Republicans in 2012 mm. and for the Democrats in 2016. And I think the states that he's targeting as well, he's essentially going for the, the Clinton vote. Um, if, Which means he Biden, if Biden does not, if Biden is a lost cause by then, I think there's a very real possibility that a lot of the Biden vote may just switch to him. He's probably I, bigger Biden, in those Biden votes. Biden will be out by Super Tuesday. I'm prepared to call that. Biden will be out by Super Tuesday. I think he'll hang on. I think Warren will hang on as well. So, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, it's a good job they are because we wouldn't have anything to talk about if we didn't. Right, okay, we're going to have to leave it there because we've gone for an hour of cracking conversation. So. Thank you very much, Liam. Uh, we are now on, please, if you like the podcast, and leave us a rating. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on CastBox. We're on Listen Notes. We're on some other ones I can't remember, but you can find us on SoundCloud as well. Please do leave us a review because it does help with the algorithm. It means more people will see us. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Mike underscore Indian. Liam is at Liam underscore K. Uh, if you like the episode, please share it. Uh, the Groucho tendency is www.thegroucho.co.uk. And until next time, I've been Mike Indian. This has been Liam Kay. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>